Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now a very simple prayer that we would receive this word that we would learn to receive it with all eagerness, that we would examine your word, that we would take your word and examine it daily, and that as you have drawn us to this call, and if you equip us with your spirit and obedience, we pray that you would increase our faith, that we would believe, that we would serve diligently, your kingdom. We ask this by the power and the promise of your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Of the Acts narrative, this is a fairly popular narrative, or at least these particular people in this narrative is they're fairly popular because how many people in here have heard of the term or the encouragement to be Berean as a Christian? What does that mean? What does it mean to be Berean? Does that mean you got to go live in Berea and get your citizenship and establish yourself? You know, is that <laughs> is that the way that it goes? Or what does it what does it mean typically when you hear someone say be a Berean Christian? What does that mean? Very studious with the word. word. Anything else? I often have heard that, I think, in light of that, also in kind of a context of be kind of critical with what you hear from other people. So as you hear the word proclaimed, so it's not just being a student of the word, um, in meaning in your own personal study, but along with that, that as you receive and hear the word being proclaimed, that your posture would be to examine it closely and that you would use to interpret the scriptures, the scriptures. That scripture interprets scripture. And so as you become a student of that, to do that. And in many cases, sometimes I've heard this conversation in some conflictual or conflicting or some critical um, stories of, you know, that maybe there's a problem with what's being proclaimed. 
um, in that you need to be Bereans so that you can determine what is false. And so that's a, a pretty common thing for us to see it in a critical way in opposing false teaching and false, false doctrine. But this particular context of this particular narrative is an encouraging one because they are not questioning Paul in the sense of that they are suspicious but they are responding to taking what they have received with what? What does it say? How was their posture toward what they received? Eagerness. With eagerness. And I think that's something that's been fairly absent from the teaching that I received, that their posture was not of one of critique, like, hmm, let's, I wonder if they're going to tell the truth. But more so of this eagerness that they were longing to hear the word, that they were looking forward to having the word taught to them. And then as a response to that, they examined it thoroughly so that they would know the truth. And then what was the fruit of this particular process? What happened, according to the passage? They believed. Some of them believed. Many of them believed. And so this is a this particular sermon it's kind of revolved around just these two particular verses with some con- context of the other but I really want to dig deep into these verses 11 and 12 today focusing on in very slow slowing it down a little bit looking at what we're receiving here from Luke receiving from God ultimately about these particular people at Berea. If we are encouraged, which I think it is a a right admonishment to encourage people to be Berean because we have here a contrast to what group of people? The Jews, what particular Jews? Because these are Jews too. The angry mean Jews, right? The Jews from what other? We don't hear people saying, be Thessalonian. All right? We definitely don't hear people say, be Corinthian in your church practice. That would be a, a scary thing, too. I always think it's funny when you see churches named you know, Corinth. There's one on the way to Mountain City that's the Corinth Baptist Church. And I'm like, man, these guys are humble. <laughs> they're, they're just putting it right out there in front of you of what kind of people that they are. But you don't hear that. But you do hear Berea is considered to be a noble practice. And we see here in verse 11, it says, Now these Jews, these particular Jews at Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So there's this contrast. We see what happened in Thessalonica. And, and since God has continued to bring these people back into this narrative, they actually show up on their own in this narrative, as we see further in the paragraph. What are the ones in Thessalonica? So let's remind ourselves from last week's sermon, what kind of Jews were in Thessalonica that are causing trouble, the bad Jews? What are some characteristics? What were their motivations? And what were their responses? Do you remember? They were were driven by jealousy. And so their jealousy caused them to have this interaction with the believing Jews, with Paul and Silas. And what were they driven by in addition to their jealousy? What was it they they appealed to when they made their arguments? The decrees of 
Caesar. They were focusing on the decrees, the mantras, the ideas, the slogans of the world. Again, these were Jews. They were supposed to be God's people. So instead of appealing to God's word, they were appealing to the ideas of that particular region, secular, godless ideas that were appealing to it. And then as they were failing in their debate and their arguments, which was what Paul was doing, he went there and he was reasoning with them. He was arguing with them that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus had to suffer. Once they lost the debate, they could not actually hold their weight in truth. They resorted to what? Sneezing. Lots of sneezing. What's that? Violence, riots. They got out of control. They decided to fight. They decided that they didn't have reason on their side. They didn't have an argument on their side. They didn't have truth on their side. And so they resorted to violence. They resorted to rioting. They resorted, they resorted to being disturbed, the disturbance to Paul into this particular ministry. And so we have here being told that these particular Jews were noble. Now, I don't know if you all think of the word noble very much when you think about the Bereans, but I, I, I do these kind of things. I, I hone in on these particular words, and I don't necessarily think that every time you see a particular word, we need to be exhaustive with it. But in this case, I think it's a very interesting thing. Noble is not mentioned very often in the New Testament. And typically, if it's used at all in the Old Testament, it is about a position what do you think of when you think of noble? What kind of things come to mind when you think of the word noble? There's a lot of questions for you this morning. I hope you all have had some good sleep. Usually somebody who's very loyal. Loyal or royal? What you say? Someone who's very loyal. Loyal, okay. So it's a character description. Anything else? How do you think it's used most often in the Bible? Right, it's a position. And so nobles tend to have land, they have some kind of authority, they have some kind of um, reputation of honor amongst people. And so you see in the Old Testament, um, they talk about the nobles, you, you see it some in the New Testament also. Um, you see God promising that he's going to hurt the nobles of a particular land. You see nobles in a positive light, but they're, it's a positional place. It's one that has inheritance, it has a position, it has respect, and it is a, a high position. And so we think of the nobles. And then because of that, there is a, also a parallel meaning that is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that connects the position with the character. Now, not everyone who is a noble is noble, but it would be hopeful that to be truly a noble is that you are noble. <laughs> and so it has, it has a double meaning in the scriptures. And so when we look at this particular passage... Is it talking about position or is it talking about character? character? It's talking about character. It's talking about what kind of people these were. So it's contrasting it that the ones, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica, and we've got to remember there were believing Jews in Thessalonica, and that was part of the problem for the unbelieving Jews. They did not like it that some would believe. But for the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica, that there's a comparison that these particular Jews, and so there was some kind of character about this group 
that Paul and Silas went to that was very distinctively different. That their posture toward Paul preaching the gospel to them was that they, would re- they wanted to receive it with eagerness. And so, and, they, and he describes this as being noble. Now, one of the things that I failed to do last week, and I think that was one reason why I landed that sermon kind of hard last week, is that when we think about these character differences, when we think about jealousy being driven by the decrees of the world, and then their actions of rioting, agitating, and stirring, that we can see that this is an inversion of the call of the gospel. In light of what we have here with these particular Jews from Berea, we see that they receive the word, they're driven by the word, and then the response to that is to examine, to believe, and to serve. Because in the serve part is that not only did they make it a discipline of their life to be students of the word, what did they do there at the end of that particular narrative? What were the believing Jews helping do? As we got to the close of that particular narrative this morning. They were helping Paul and Silas and Timothy. They also responded to the instruction to go ahead and send Timothy and Silas with submission. They submitted to that call. And so you see them working along with the other believers for the furthering of the gospel, for the protection of the brothers. They have now bound themselves to this particular ministry. They didn't just go, thanks, I appreciate that information. We are with you on this. We believe have a good day. No, they actually bound themselves to their own potential hurt by getting Paul out of harm's way and then eventually submitting to the instruction, assumingly from Paul, to go ahead and send Timothy and Silas. They became the brothers. They became connected. And it wasn't just the brothers. It was also the sisters. We see that even again as we did last time in the other passage. And so if you think about what the call of the gospel is, is to repent and to believe, or if you're looking in that direction, repent and to believe, that the unbelieving Thessalonican Jews, they responded with jealousy. They weren't responding with humility, so they were anti-repentant. Whereas the Berean Jews, they were receiving the word. They were receiving the admonishment. They were receiving the encouragement that they needed a Savior, that Jesus came to be their Messiah, their Savior. So they responded to the call of the gospel with receiving it. And then as you have the call of the gospel to repent and believe, they were driven to the word. Whereas the Thessalonican unbelieving Jews were driven to the world. And in the decrees of the world, they were going further into unbelief because they were adopting more of what the world was teaching. And whereas the call of the gospel is to serve the kingdom of God, the Berean Christians serve the church. And the Thessalonican unbelieving Jews were resorting to rioting and agitating, going against the church, being enemies of the church being those who would scoff at the church. And so the gospel is being portrayed here, both in comparison and contrast of these different groups of people that when they heard the gospel, were they imitating the gospel in their response or were they inverting the gospel? And we see here that this is an encouraging example for us. And I would want to encourage that we consider the question, do we want to be noble Christians? Do we want to have the 
It's the word I'm looking for. The reputation of being those who are noble. How many woke up this morning saying, I, I would want one day for people to think that I'm a very noble Christian? <laughs> Although, Joanne raised her hand. <laughs> Just scratching her head. That's not usually a thing that we, we think is a very, you know, we, we kind of look at that as this kind of high and haughty, right? Kind of, kind of beyond us. Now, we would like to consider ourselves maybe broken Christians or struggling Christians. That seems like a very noble kind of response to what kind of Christians we would want to be. But here, I think we have in this particular narrative, I think a, a indirect teaching for us, for us to desire to be noble, because we don't want to be... Thessalonican unbelieving kind of Jews. We want to be those who are noble. And I think that the scripture is teaching us to desire nobility. And I think when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament together, wherever the word has been translated to noble in a character description, it's definitely an encouragement of who we want to be. And I don't hear that kind of teaching very much. I don't hear that we want to be known as noble. That, you know, it's just, it, doesn't sound, it just sounds too stuffy, kind of like the word pious or something like that. We don't want to be considered to be pious Christians. And that could be a whole other argument. But today in this particular passage, I think we should leave here, one, being encouraged to be those who are noble, but also that we would figure out what noble means. So the four things to consider through this particular passage is that what did the, the connection to their nobility indicate directly in the passage. First, they received the word with eagerness. And so if this is a positive encouragement, this is a positive admonishment for us, that to be noble, we should be those who would receive with eagerness. Now, many of us, I think, and including myself, whenever, if I'm flipping through the internet or anything, and I see that somebody's got a sermon, and I'm like, oh, I'm not interested in hearing that, or some clip of a sermon, my, I'm immediately typically ready to be critical <laughs> because there's so much bad stuff that's out there. And I'm not saying take down your critical mindset, but are we those who are looking and posturing ourselves before the presentation of God's word with an eagerness that God would transform us, that he would encourage us, that he would actually maybe admonish us away from sin and root us into his grace and his righteousness And that we would actually be looking forward to seeing miracles occur by the actual hearing and the receiving of God's word. So that's point one. Point two, they examine the scriptures daily. So you've got to remember here, there's a particular pattern that's going on in the missionary journey from Paul. Is that he's going from one place to the next. And when he does, where's the first place he typically goes? And it's about to end pretty soon. (laughs) He's going to do a different technique. But right now he's going where when he first gets there? He goes to the synagogue, and he goes to the synagogue because that's where God's people are supposed to be, people who should be surrounding the word of God already that have both a mixture of those who are practicing, practicing, practicing Jews or God-fearing Gentiles. And so he's going there, and he's hopefully building off of a foundation that's already there that they're studying the word. So the first thing that they do is they meet weekly as they're receiving this word with, word with eagerness. But these particular people are noble because not only are they there weekly to receive the word with eagerness, they are also examining it when? Daily. They're in the word daily. They're searching out the word daily. 
They're wanting to take with what they took with eagerness by hearing the public proclamation of God's word. And then they're going deeper into that word in their own time, maybe even together, studying the word, examining words so that they may see that these things are true. So they may see something, so that they may understand and comprehend something, so they may grasp what God is, who he is and what he is doing so they may be able to determine the truth. That's what it means by it says, I think it's an interesting, you know, I, I try to dig around with this particular study of the word that, that they may determine that it is so. You know, what does this word so mean in the Greek? And, I, and it just simply, that it's true. That they want to know the truth. That they want to see the truth. They want to believe the truth. They want to understand the truth. Now, the interesting thing is, is that these are all things that preceded the third point, which is many, therefore, because of this particular posture before the Lord, many, therefore, believed that they actually, by being in this particular posture, God was gracious to increase their faith and their belief. I was hearing someone recently talking about someone that they were counseling saying that this particular person says they cry out to God all the time, but they're not hearing anything. And I know that feeling sometimes, and I know that many of you may have experienced that sometimes. But I asked that particular individual, I said, where are they in the word? Are they they wrestling with God in the word? Because if you go to David, you can see that David is in his Psalms, he is... He's both highlighting God's word, but then also saying, God, it doesn't seem like you're keeping your word. Your word is always victorious. You always keep your word, but it doesn't look like you're keeping your word. It's going kind of back and forth in the Psalms. But what is he using there in the whole place? He is putting forth the word before the Lord, that even as he is in despair and seemingly like, I don't see where you're at. He goes back to the word and he holds God accountable to his own word. He's wrestling there and then he is eventually, even through the process of crying out to God in his despair, even sometimes seeming very close to even blaspheming God, he still lands in the word. God grants him an increase of his faith and his belief. A noble Christian is going to do this even when they are not yet at the place A lot of people think that, well, when I get myself together, I'll become a very strong disciple of the Lord. Or maybe if I can get through some issues in my life right now, then I will commit myself to this particular study or this particular church or whatever. God says that to be a noble servant before him is that even preceding that to actually desiring to see your faith increased is to present yourself in a posture with eagerness in a continual discipline, waiting on the Lord to actually bear forth the fruit of faith. And then fourthly, which is interesting, and I think it's an important thing to highlight because Luke keeps highlighting this, the people who are actually the recipients of this. Here in this particular case, he again highlights that there are Gentile women who are amongst those who are believing. Now, that should be encouraging to us for a lot of reasons. But when we consider the flow of the Old into the New Testament and how the Lord is posturing himself toward his people, is that the type of the people, he is reaching everyone, that even people who are not considered by 
Old Testament standards as being necessarily those that God would highlight as being those in a place of recipients of God's inheritance, that this is, these are Gentile women who are coming to faith. Now, the interesting thing here is that as we see that this word noble is being used as a character description, I think it's also a hint toward a positional description. That these are people who are becoming the saints of God. Gentile women, that would have been just out of the mind of most of Jewish people are becoming those who are noble believers of God. So we want to go through just some passages here. I don't have a lot to dig into here, but I want to get us a, a biblical sense of this word noble. So in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 6, we see that nobles speak what is right because they know what is right. In verse 6 it says, Here, for I will speak noble things and from my lips will come what is right we see this parallel it is synonymous it should be synonymous that speaking noble things or speaking right things both because they know what is right and they will speak and so we need to see that rooted in that there's this connection and relationship between knowing what's right in speaking what's right, and we see that implied also in that particular narrative that they were desiring to study so that they may know that it's so, that they would, what is true, what is right. They wanted to know what is right. Proverbs 17, verse 26, that true nobles live what is right. It says in Proverbs, to impose a fine on the righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Again, it's not just knowing what is right and speaking what is right, but it is living what is right. That this understanding of noble as both adjective and description of individual and position is that there's this definite clarity that it has to do with rightness. It has to do with truth. It has to do with goodness. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, in the qualifications of an overseer, one who was leading the church, leading the church both in service, but also in example. In verse 1 it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Again, this is con- combining and connecting what is a of, description of character along with position. But an elder, basically what an elder is, is one who has shown forth, hopefully, a life of character in leading the church to all be desiring to be noble in their servitude to the Lord. It is not a distinction for overseers that they're the only ones to be noble. It's actually to lead other people to that same nobility and that same calling. Well, I'm hoping you're beginning to see maybe some of you who are engaged in this and understanding this character and also position, that this can only be one. As we've already seen in our description, this is why it's so important in our confession of faith. What, because of the fall, where did it list in the results of the fall 
and that some of you are going to be noble. <laughs> it was a pretty heinous description of what we become. Dark. We become alienated from the whole idea of what nobility truly is. And that we can't conjure it up. But we'll see in the other lessons of that particular teaching in the Canons of Dort is that it is impossible for us to conjure up nobility. That it has to be a gift to us. That it has to be a grace to us. If you have your Bibles with you, turn, because I'm going to read a few extra verses in just one verse, Isaiah chapter 32. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. So how do we become noble? How do we become noble in character? How do we become noble even in position? This particular chapter of Isaiah is a... One of those descriptions that are, is both the here and the come, it's the now and what's to come. It's prophetic and also a general principle of what it is when a king reigns in righteousness. But everyone sees and knows that based upon the, prof- the prophecies of Isaiah, these were messianic prophecies that even if there was any semblance of this landing in their time then and there, it was not going to be ultimately fulfilled and cannot be ultimately fulfilled apart from the Messiah. So this is a messianic prophecy of what is to come with the coming of the Messiah. Verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Now, catch this. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. So we have a a group of people who are already seeing and who are already hearing, and they will be sustained in that. But look at the second. The, the, sec, the, the next verse here is kind of it was really challenging for me. It says, "The heart of the hasty will understand and know; the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly." So I think this is kind of almost a different group of people, or at least a different character, or maybe of the same people sometimes. Because sometimes I feel like I'm I'm kind of on it, and then sometimes I know I'm definitely not on it. Here it says, "The heart of the." Hasty will understand. What it means here is those who come to quick judgments, those who are who enter into action without wisdom and thought, people who act before thinking. It says for those kind of people, anybody like that? <laughs> Nobody's raising their hand. I'm like that. They will understand and know. They will actually have discernment. That there's going to, in the coming of the Messiah, for the, the, the coming of the Messiah, those who are hasty, who, act, who, don't, who don't act out of wisdom sometimes, will understand and know. The tongue of the stammerers, those who do not speak well, and I think it's both in a physical and also content, that not speaking well in the sense of not saying the right things, they will be hastened to, to speak, <laughs> they will hasten to speak distinctly. That there will be clarity and goodness in what they speak. So you, you have here that those who are already receiving and understanding, 
they will be sustained. And those who are weak, who need to have understanding and to be able to speak, they will be given that. But then there's a judgment that comes also. It says in verse 5, the fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the the fool speaks folly in his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He, He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. We can see here that there's probably a very clear description of the unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica coming here and causing this kind of problem to actually, because they, it says very clearly, according to the word of God, the reason why they were provoked to come to Berea is because they heard the word of God was being preached. This very good news that Jesus promised would come to the poor, that would be preached amongst the poor in the suffering, in the, un, the hungry, in those who are unsatisfied, those who are thirsty, they were set against set in evil evil against those who needed the gospel. And they will be hardened in that particular task as the Messiah comes and brings forth not only sustenance but transformation for his people that when what the world considers to be noble, to be of high estate, or to be a good character, which is again the decrees of Caesar and the falsehoods that we see even proclaimed today of what is considered to be virtuous and noble today. I mean, we're constantly being bombarded by how we're supposed to think about every subject there is, and it's so absent from being rooted in the Word of God. But it is what is considered to be noble. Well, the hope is in the Messiah that those fools, that these foolish doctrines will no more be considered to be noble and virtuous. They will not be those who have honor. But in verse 8, it says, But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. It's this contrast of false nobility with true nobility, and it's only accomplished... By the fulfillment of this prophecy in the coming of the Messiah. That Jesus Christ is the one who is going to deliver this nobility to the church. He's the one who delivered it to Berea. Through the preaching of the gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit, in the kingdom of God, in the building of the church... God has delivered through his son, through our savior, through the promised Messiah. He has delivered this nobility to his people. We also have in Proverbs 25, 6 and 7, it says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than it is to be put lower in the presence of a noble. In that particular proverb, it is teaching us to have humility before the king. Not jealousy toward the king. Not the 
adhering to the decrees of a false king like Caesar, but to be humble, to put yourself before the king, not as if you are the one who is great. For it is better to be told to come up here than to come with haughtiness and to put, be put lower before a true noble, which is what happens in Isaiah with those who are interwoven with foolishness. Does anybody know of where there is an echo of that or even a more meaty version of that? It's in the gospel. A gospel according to who? To Luke, the same writer. A parable of who? A parable of Jesus Christ. A parable of the wedding feast. He not only parallels this particular proverb, he puts lots of meat on those bones and describes to us really a fuller understanding of what was given to us in the Proverbs. Luke chapter 14, verse 7 through 11. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose places of honor saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then he will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The amazing thing about the characteristic of the Berean Christians is that their nobility was one of humility, that they received the word with eagerness, looking forward to the promises of God being fulfilled in them. Being admonished even with their own sin in contrast to the righteousness of the great nobility of our king. When you hear the word of God preach, when you are given opportunities to hear me or anyone else preach, regardless of my ability to speak without stammering, Know that it is hopefully in the word of God that through the power of God's word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he brings forth transformation. So when you sit before any preaching, may it be that you sit with the eagerness that the king will humble you and continue to draw you forward to his table. May it be that you do not come with haughtiness and hypercriticism, not just for my sake, but for the sake of your own soul. That you would be those who would be willing to sit in the lower place as you receive the food that comes from the table. That you would be like the Syrophoenician woman to be just content to receive the crumbs under his table, knowing that that will sustain you and transform you. But also know that 
With that posturing, that gospel posturing of true humility and repentance, that you can have every belief that you will gain by the power of Jesus Christ, the one who was truly noble, the one who could not grasp his position as being one to be attained in his calling then, but who gave up his seat for a season to be placed on the cross so that he would not only sit in his noble position alone, but that you would be invited to sit with him. We become proclamations of the gospel, proclamations of the character or the nobility of Christ through the receiving of his word, through the examining of his word each day in our lives. As you study the word of God, you're putting yourself before the noble king who became lower than all the earthly nobles for a season so that he would become the noble of nobles, the king of kings. Is it too much of a task? Is it too much of a drudgery and dreading to spend time in the word knowing that here in this example, this Berean example, that if you take that lower seat of not assuming that you've got it all figured out, not assuming that the world's nobility, their false nobility and their false virtue is going to sustain you, do you spend more time hearing those sermons from the world than you spend time in his word? It will not bring forth profit, profit because the prophet Isaiah said that those would be left in their foolishness. But for those who hear his word with humility, we actually become noble. We become nobles. We become one with the king. That's an amazing thing. This table is the table that he's talking about. So you can't come to this table saying, hey, I deserve to be at this table. All right? Y'all just don't hold up. I'm here. We can't come that way. We have to come to this table saying, put me under the table. Put me at the very lowest seat. I, I, I'm amazed that I'm even invited. I mean, I, I shouldn't even be sitting in the same room with this table. And then that's where he wants us to be so that he may say, friend, come up. Come up to the table. And if that's you, if you're coming here with that level of humility, this call to the table is to tell you, friend, Jesus calls you, friend, come to his table and eat and sit in the place of true nobility because he has conquered it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you.